If you've got your Bibles this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, we're looking at verses 1 through 11. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're still talking about being royalty, noble living in a needy world. Being the nobility that God has called us to be, the royalty, understanding who we are in Christ. But as we turn to chapter 4, now that Jesus has kind of launched his public ministry, as we saw last week, his baptism by John the Baptist, now we're going to see right at the very beginning that the kingdom that we're talking about being a part of is under attack. And if the kingdom is under attack, we know that the king is under attack. And so we see, beginning in verse 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God... Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone." Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship me. The Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And that was strike three, right? The devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Father, we thank you that you saw it important to include this testing of Jesus in your word. To not only demonstrate to us that we serve a victorious king, but to also show us how we can also gain victory over the enemy and over the temptations that he throws at us on a daily basis. I pray now that your spirit would lead us into your truth, appropriate it to our hearts and change our lives, and may we leave this place ready to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. One of my favorite intense dramas from back in the 90s was the movie Air Force One. It was uh, another Harrison Ford movie. For those of you who like Harrison Ford, this movie has him portraying the President of the United States. And we see that there's a terrorist attack and they go right for the President. They go after the Commander-in-Chief. They go after the uh, what they would have considered the supreme person of royalty because they had a mission. And if you have seen the movie, you realize that the terrorists, much like terrorists today, were not simply after a political figure. They wanted to use that political figure to accomplish their own agenda. And of course, Uh, The movie has a very dramatic ending. If you haven't seen it, I won't ruin it for you. Uh, But 
it portrays to me a little bit of how the devil is at work today. And we don't need acts of terrorism to tell us that there's evil in the world, although it is a big-time reminder. Uh, Yesterday evening when I get an email that says, pray for the folks in a particular, relief workers in a particular city of Iraq because the city next to them has fallen. They're beheading babies, ISIS. They're beheading babies. And we hear about another relief worker who is beheaded, someone who was trying to help them out. We don't have to look far to realize that there is evil in the world. There is a devil. He is very real and very active. And ultimately, killing leaders, attacking Christ, is what they would consider only part of their agenda. They have what they would consider a more supreme agenda. The devil wasn't simply out to kill Christ. In many ways, he wanted to get Jesus to avoid the cross because he realized, I think the devil understood the Scriptures better than the religious crowd of that day. He realized that through the cross... Jesus would gain victory over him, so he did everything he could to tempt Jesus to even avoid the cross. He wasn't just simply trying to kill Christ. He wanted to usurp his agenda with his own. So the temptations begged for the compromise of nobility. If I can get him not to act like the royalty that he is. The devil has always wanted preeminence. Isaiah chapter 14 records his fall from the heavens, along with one-third of all of the angels, when he said, I will be like the Most High. I will make myself supreme. And that was the beginning of the end for Lucifer. So it's important to know that this event that happens in Matthew chapter 4 is sovereignly allowed. Verse 1 says that Jesus was led by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God allows this temptation to take place, but we also need to remember that God is not the source of the temptation. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But for His sovereign purposes, when Jesus identifies with humanity, in His humanity, He was allowed to experience those temptations that His own created people experience. Temptation becomes a proving ground, as James describes it. And believers in the midst of this temptation have the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has taken you except that which is common to man. In other words, whatever that temptation, you know, Hebrews says, lay aside the temptation that or the sin that most easily entangles. So whatever sin tempts you the most, defeats you the most, Scripture says that is a temptation that is common to mankind. We, every man, woman, boy, and girl, faces some kind of temptation. And we're not alone in that battle. He says, no temptation has taken you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful and with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can bear up under it, so that you can 
be victorious in the midst of it. For Jesus, this experience was part of the incarnational experience. The Word became flesh so that He might not only die for the sins of the world, but experience what we've experienced in this life. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never gave in to temptation. Jesus was the sinless Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so we can learn from the way that Jesus withstands the attacks how Jesus filled Christian or how Jesus filled Christians can also live in victory over temptation. So as we look at what Christ did here in the wilderness, we're learning how Jesus filled Christians can also live in victory over sin and the temptations that we face. And the first thing I want you to note from the passage is that we need to recognize the nature of sin's appeal. Recognize the nature of sin's appeal. We need to know where it's coming from. We need to, because most of the time temptation, sin sneaks up on us, and we might say, the devil made me do it, but we should have seen it coming all along. So let's recognize the nature of sin's appeal. Jesus had fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and nights. Now, he was being spiritually prepared, but he was also becoming physically what we would describe as weak and vulnerable in particular areas. So the devil tempted him first, where the devil assumed that Jesus would be the most vulnerable at this point in his time of fasting. In verse 2, in the midst of this season of fasting, he comes and Jesus is hungry. Verse 3, the tempter came and says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now this brings up the subject of the peccability of Christ. You're like, what in the world are you talking about, the peccability of Christ? When we speak of the peccability of Christ, we speak of the, the, the theological subject of whether Jesus could have sinned or not. Well, that's a pretty deep subject. That's a hard thing to get your mind around. Because if we come to the conclusion, if we say it was possible for Jesus to choose to sin, then we're making some kind of statement about the deity of Christ and the sinless nature of Christ that might take us into an area that we had rather not go. But if we come to the conclusion that Jesus could not have sinned and would not have sinned, then we say, well, that's not fair. He wasn't really tempted like we are. Because there was no way that he was going to sin to begin with. Well, I believe that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Meaning that whether or not he would sin was never in question. He was not going to sin. But as part of the human experience... He was sovereignly allowed to feel the temptation of sin just as we can feel it in our lives. Much like the way he felt the pain of the cross, there was no way Jesus was going to avoid the cross. But he certainly felt 
the pain and the agony of the cross. And on the cross, our sins and all hell was laid upon Him. Even though the cross would not get victory over Him, He would be able to experience the suffering and the agony and the pain and the death of the cross. And in the same way, I believe all that temptation puts on us, Jesus was allowed to feel that temptation even though He was not going to succumb to that temptation, but He was going to demonstrate to us how to overcome temptation. And so do I believe that Jesus, that there was ever any doubt at any time that He was going to sin? Personally, I don't believe that there was. But do I believe that in any way anything was held back from Him to experience the pull of sin that we feel? I don't think anything was held back. So part of His human experience was to identify with us, just as He took our sins on the cross, Isaiah 53. The Lord laid on Him who knew no sins, the sin of the world. But He had to experience temptations in the wilderness. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that we do not have a high priest who can identify with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who in every way was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So, so what was the nature of that temptation? Well, it, we know that the sources of temptation are the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're attacked by the world, we're attacked by the flesh, we're attacked by the devil... But I want to encourage you not to make the mistake that I used to make years ago. I, I built a false dichotomy between the world and the flesh and the devil. I, I would say, well, this temptation is coming from the world, or that one's coming from the devil, or that one's coming from the flesh. And, and I've been known to even say in, in my past, the devil doesn't have any time for me. The devil doesn't have to worry about me because he's got bigger people in the world to worry about, and so he's allowing just the, the flesh gives me a, a, a difficult time, or the world gives me a difficult time. But I, as I've grown in my understanding of scriptures and, and how the enemy works, I realize that the devil is like that arsonist that throws the matchstick of the world on the gasoline of your flesh. It's all kind of working together. And we're constantly as royalty under the attack of the enemy. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober. Be vigilant because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I know that the devil is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. But I also know the devil is really fast. And, and I know that he also has a, an entourage of the demonic forces and his attacks and his forces in the world according to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. He's, he's a prince over all of the wicked forces and high places in the world today. And I believe those are spiritually high places, that there is kind of a, a, a spiritual demonic hierarchy that's at work, and I believe that it becomes very literal at times, even in the political realms in this world in which we live. The devil has a system that is at work all around us, and though he is not omnipresent and he doesn't have to be at work in our lives directly, and sometimes he is, sometimes he's not, he has a system in place that's working against us. And so it's the world and the flesh and the devil working together. 
And when we think of this worldly system as it's under the control of the prince of the power of the air for this period of time in the world, we think of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, which says, don't let, you know, we're told before that, don't love the world with the things in the world, for all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Th- those are the trappings of the enemy. The lust of the, the, lust of the eyes... And the pride of life. That's what this world, under the leadership of the enemy, the devil, the adversary, that's what it's attacking us with. That's the nature of the sinful attack, the assault that is on us, that Jesus endured here in the wilderness. Look how he came at him. The lust of the flesh, verses 2 and 3 again. He came to him when he was at this moment of fasting and, and hungry, And the temptation is, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, most of us don't have to have been fasting for a period of time for somebody to walk by our table at a restaurant with some hot rolls and we're like, hey, stop here, please. (laughs) And so can you imagine the temptation if you had been fasting for a period of time and somebody says, turn these stones into bread. And you had the power to do that. See, that appeals to the flesh. Now, the wonderful thing about being saved is that in the Spirit, God has made us a brand new person. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 4 says, The righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us when we walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So that means that Christians still have a choice to make every day whether or not we're going to walk in the Spirit or walk in the flesh. Although we have this new nature in Christ and Christ lives in us, we have not received a glorified body yet, and so we still battle the flesh and the desires of the flesh And we live in a day and a time where the world tells us to worship pleasure. Please your flesh. Make your flesh happy. If it feels good, do it. How can something, boy, this is a country song, isn't it? How can something that feels so right be wrong? How can something that feels good, God not desire us to enjoy it? And so that's that mentality. It came out during the sexual revolution that if it feels good, do it. I remember evangelist Todd Roberts speaking at a church in Athens to a group of teenagers one time. He said that he pulled up behind the car. I don't know if this story is true or not, but it sure did sound good. But he pulled up behind the car and he said the car had a bumper sticker that said, if it feels good, do it. And so he was so frustrated by that philosophy, he stepped on the gas, rear-ended the car, the guy got out and said, you had come to a complete stop, you idiot, why in the world did you rear-end me? And he said, because it felt good. (laughs) If it feels good, do it. That's the mentality of this world. And so people get involved in all kinds of simple behavior. They give into the flesh, they give into temptation because we're told to make ourselves feel good. God desires that we are good, not that we feel good, that we live righteous lives, and so we give in to that pleasure. And it always costs us something. As a matter of fact, I heard last week Dr. Ravi Zacharias was talking about how pleasure works. He says, pleasure always costs you something. There's always a price to pay. 
and the righteous pleasure that we feel is when we pay the price first. Discipline ourselves. Keep ourselves pure for those of you who are single. Keeping ourselves pure until we are married and then we experience righteous pleasure and we've paid the price for that. But the devil would say, no, experience pleasure first. And when you do, guess what? You pay an even bigger price later. Pleasure will cost something. Righteous pleasure says pay first. So we discipline ourselves to get in on what God has for us. Then it's, he comes at him with the lust of the eyes. This is the lust of the flesh, 1 John 2.16. Then the lust of the eyes, verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to come back. I'm going to do this in the order that they're found in First John rather than in this text. But I want us to skip ahead to, to verses eight and nine. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, "All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me." Now, I wonder if it ever occurred to the devil while he was saying this, how absurd it was, to speak to the one who created the universe and say, how would you like me to give this to you? When Jesus knew that through the cross and resurrection, he was going to redeem it all to himself, and one day there was going to be a new heaven and a new earth anyway, and and this would be burned up and consumed, how absurd was it for the devil to offer something that was second rate? But that's what the lust of the eyes does for us. We see things and we desire things we should not desire. We covet things we should not covet. I've been guilty of of driving down the highway before and saying, "Uh, Lord, that's a nice truck. I don't want that. I don't want to covet my neighbor's truck. I just want one just like it. (laughs) I want one just like my neighbor has. And it's been said that men are even more visual than women. This is an area that men fall short in. That's why we ask ladies, dress modestly. You might be part of this generation that says, well, I can dress however I want to dress, but a Christian lady will say, you know what? I don't want to be a temptation for anybody and for the lust of the eyes because that is something men who are very visual. And they're visual not just in that area of lust, but in every area. You watch a man after he washes his car and he parks. You see, a lady parks her car at the mall and she's got her eye on JCPenney or Belks or whatever. She's walking into the mall. A man parks his car at the mall and he's walking. He looks back at it, looks back at it again. Men are so visual. And sometimes the lust of the eyes makes us want things that do not belong to us. And then there's if we escape the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, there's the pride of life. Go back to verses 5 and 6. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So the attack here was, Let the angels bear you up. Prove who you are to everybody. Just show off a little bit, Jesus. You just show off a little bit, and everybody will think you're the greatest. The pride of life. See, right in the middle of sin is the letter I. 
Right in the middle of the word pride is the letter I. And what the devil wants you to do is just to put I in the middle. It's all about me. I've got to have my way. And so we we find ourselves not helping out with the family responsibilities around the house because I want to do what I want to do. We find ourselves not being that servant at our workplace because it's all about me. It's making me happy. It's get what's coming to me. It's the pride of life. Temptation says take a shortcut to the top if you have to cheat your way to get to where you want to go. And we cheat in business. We cheat to accomplish things at school and in the workplace to try to make a shortcut to the top. The pride of life may be the man who says, I've got to get all I can, can all I get, and sit on the can. (laughs) Or it may be the lady who says, I've got to marry money. That's the pride of life. I'm glad Tina didn't say that. Or the teenage girl who says, I have to have a date. What will my friends think if I don't have a boyfriend? Whether she's spiritually, emotionally ready for that or not. Or the teenage boy who says, well, I'm not ready for a relationship either, but I've got to have that arm candy. I've got to have that trophy. If young ladies could hear how young men speak of young ladies in the locker room, fewer of them would be so quick to want to date. Or simply the fact that so many just buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. It's the pride of life. See, this is always the devil's strategy. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, Adam and Eve fell into temptation because they, the, the, it says that the fruit was good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and desirable to gain wisdom so that they could be like God. That's the pride of life. The devil has always used that strategy. is continuing to use that. And when we recognize it, we're ahead of the game. We see that it's a baited hook. James chapter 1, 13, I read a moment ago, that let no one say he is tempted when he is tempted that he's tempted by God, but each man, it goes on to say, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust, his own desires, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, and he's enticed. And that word enticed has to do with like, like bait on a hook, draws a fish. It's a lure, it's an enticement. He's drawn away, he's lured away, and he's enticed. And then it says, and when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it leads to death. We just don't always see the hook in the bait. It's like Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. It's a trick. I remember Scott Smith telling the story of some missionaries in South America who had a little dog outside it was just kind of chained to a tree and one night that dog just went to yapping yapping and yapping and yapping and one of those one of those little dogs i always have a problem with little dogs i think god made little dogs for big dogs to eat them but this little dog just kept yapping and yapping and yapping and the dog wouldn't shut up yap 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 and, and finally they were like going outside trying to get the dog to be quiet the dog was barking at something in the woods they just kind of left it alone and 
the dog kept yapping, kept yapping, driving them crazy, and all of, t- t- all of a sudden they heard one, whoop, one last yelp. They didn't hear the dog again, and they're like, well, finally, shut up. And when they went out to check on the dog, they saw that the dog had been swallowed by an anaconda. <laughs> the dog was now in the belly of this large snake. But the snake had a problem. The snake was now chained to a tree. And they were able to kill the snake. Sometimes we see the bait and it looks so inviting, so enticing, it appeals to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and we go for it and we find ourselves in bondage, in bondage thinking we would enjoy something and it is the very thing that we thought we would enjoy that chains us and holds us back from God's agenda. Remember what I said at the beginning, the devil wanted to usurp his agenda for Christ. It's not that the devil just wants to say, ha ha, I defeated you. He's about defeating the plan and the agenda of Christ in your life. And so if he can have you chained to a tree somewhere, then he's content with that. Again, the devil's Real and alive, if we open our eyes, we'll see that John 10.10 is true. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The second part of verse 10 in John chapter 10 says, But I have come, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, and that you might have it to the fullest. Isn't it ironic that those things that promise you life end up chaining you to a tree, pulling you away from the one who truly does give you life and and joy and and, and fullness of purpose and and all that God has in store. So how do we respond? First, we need to recognize, but secondly, we need to respond with the nobility of Christ's example. We respond like Jesus did. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God appropriated by faith. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus, we're told, returned in the power of the Spirit in Luke's Gospel. So Jesus was walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. It's the Spirit of God, but it's also the Spirit of God leading us into all truth as He promised us that He would do in John chapter 16. The Spirit leads us into all truth, so it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It means we've got to spend time in the Word of God that's appropriated by faith. James chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 9, after we talked about in 5, 8, that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 9 says that if we resist him, we resist him standing firm in the faith. What's the faith? The faith, once for all delivered to the saints, is God's word. We resist him with the word of God. God's precepts. God's principles, whether we can quote chapter, line, and verse or not, when we grasp the principles of God's Word, they begin to give us ammunition against the enemy. So when we, under the leadership of the Spirit, appropriate God's Word, believing by faith that He really does know what's best and have what's best in store for us, we overcome the attack of the enemy. We refuse the world's best, its traps, And we choose God's best. So how did Jesus handle the lust of the flesh? Verse 4, with the Word of God. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word 
that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not only did he use the word to defeat the enemy right here, but he let him know what his tactic was going to be. Listen, I'm going to abide by the word, the principles and precepts of God, because my obedience, even within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son's obedience to the Father would lead to victory in this matter. How much more then are we dependent on obedience by faith to the Word of God and appropriating it when we're under attack. It's believing when something appeals to our flesh that no, God really has something better in store. By faith, appropriating the Word of God. Lust of the eyes, verse 10. How did Jesus respond? Temptation to give in to the lust of the eyes. And with, he says, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. I'm not giving in to this idolatry. We say, well, we're not guilty of idolatry. We're not going to put little idols on our mantles at home and bow down and worship and pray to false gods. No, but we worship. We're guilty of idolatry when we worship the things of this world, when our eyes see something and we say, we've got to have that. Often, lust of the eyes is simply idolizing something more than we worship Christ. And so, he attacks it with the Word of God and says, I am going to worship God and serve Him only. And finally, the pride of life. Jesus exposed the lie to the pride of life. In verse 7, he says, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. See, the devil had actually taken Scripture out of context to try to get Jesus to do something that the Father would not have him do. Jesus put Scripture back in its context and says, you don't play games with God. You don't play games with God. Get behind me. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to glorify myself at this moment. So this wisdom does not come naturally. The second Corinthians ten four says as much. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not of this world. It doesn't come natural. That's why we need a prayer life. That's why we can't wait till temptation comes our way or we've waited too late. We've got to spend time in prayer. That's why we need body life where we're together with the brothers and sisters in Christ in worship settings like this where the word of God is being fed, but also in small groups where we're studying the Bible and holding one another accountable in community environments. Why we need to have personal Bible study. That's why worship is so vital in our lives because that's when the Spirit of God and the Word of God begins to saturate our souls. That's why we must choose wise counsel. That's why we listen to godly music. That's why we filter our websites. That's why we choose to believe God for the very best so that we don't buy into the trappings of this world. But when we neglect body life, when we neglect prayer life, when we neglect Bible study and worship and wise counsel, and we fill our minds with garbage that's on the internet and on the radio and everywhere else, all of a sudden we become vulnerable and we've lost the attack before it ever happens. Because we're not spiritually prepared. We need to fall in love with Jesus Christ and by faith appropriate the Word of God and say, I already know in advance that His way is best. You know, there are two Greek heroes that overcame the, the mythological sirens, the song of the sirens. You might have heard the stories in um, Homer's uh, 
Odyssey, where the, the song of the sirens was supposed to be the most beautiful song. The sirens were these creatures, these sea creatures that were kind of scaly and, and scary and would de- devour anybody that came into their area. But they had this beautiful song. that they, and the, the myth had it that when sailors would sail anywhere close by, if they heard the song of the sirens, they would be lured by that song. No one could resist the temptation. And they would be lured by the song of the sirens and eventually be destroyed by the sirens. But the two Greek heroes that overcame did it in two different ways. One was Odysseus, who says, I want to hear the song of the sirens. And so he put wax in the ears of all of the crew on his ship, and he had them lash him to the mast. They tied him to the mast of the ship so that he could not move. And so he was considered a hero because he was able to hear the song of the sirens, but lashed to the mast, he couldn't move. And the others that were sailing with him couldn't hear the song of the sirens, and so he was able to hear it and pass on by. And a lot of Christians want to gain victory that way. If I just have enough willpower... I can say no to sin. I know what's going to come at me this week. I know what's going to tempt me on Monday. I know what's coming at school on Tuesday. I know what's going to happen on Wednesday. I know what's going to happen Thursday, Friday, Friday night, Saturday. I know what's going to happen. And if I can just be lashed to the mast and say no and say no and grit my teeth and get through all the temptation and not turn when it comes my way, then I'll be victorious. And when we fail and we fail and we fail and we fail, we we, we pull the cords loose from the mast. But the other hero was named Jason. And Jason's way of overcoming was to have not himself lashed to the mast or wax put in the ears of his crew members, but to bring Orpheus. See, Orpheus was known as having the most beautiful voice in all of the history of the world. So he was going to bring Orpheus with him. And he would have Orpheus begin to sing when they got near the Song of the Sirens. And the, the sound of Orpheus was so beautiful that the Song of the Sirens fell, uh, paled in comparison. And so he didn't have to be lashed to the mast. Didn't have to have wax in the ears of his crew. He just said, here's a better song. And kept on sailing. And that, that's what I think God wants us to do. Fall so in love with Jesus that we say, you know what, the devil's singing his song. He's singing his song over here, he's singing it over here, but I'm not hearing it because Jesus is singing such a better song. He's got such a better plan for my life. By faith, I'm appropriating his word. I'm getting in on what he has for me. And anything the devil could offer just pales in comparison. I want what Jesus has for me. So I'm saying no to this temptation when it comes my way. I think that's how he wants us to live. Not tied up, but free to live for Him. Filled with His Spirit, guided by His Word. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer?